Chapter twenty six of the Hand of Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter twenty six The Demon's Self. Through the glass panes of the skylight, I looked down upon a scene so bizarre that my actual environment became blotted out, and I was mentally translated to Cairo, to that quarter of Cairo immediately surrounding the famous square of the fountain to those indescribable streets, wherefrom arises the perfume of deathless evil, wherein, to the wailing, luresome music of the reed pipe, painted dancing girls sway in the wild abandon of dances that were ancient when Thebes was the city of a hundred gates, I seemed to stand again in Elwasser. The room below was rectangular, and around three of the walls were divans strewn with garish cushions, whilst highly coloured eastern rugs were spread upon the floor. Four lamps swung on chains, two from either of the beams which traversed the apartment. They were fine examples of native perforated brasswork. Upon the divan some eight or nine men were seated, fully half of whom were orientals or half-castes. Before each stood a little inlaid table bearing a brass tray, and upon the trays were various boxes, some apparently containing sweetmeats, others cigarettes. One or two of the visitors smoked curious long-stemmed pipes and sipped coffee. Even as I leaned from the platform surveying that incredible scene, incredible in a street of Soho, another devotee of hashish entered, a tall, distinguished-looking man wearing a light coat over his evening dress. "'God!' whispered Smith beside me. "'Sir Bingham Pine of the Injury Office. You see, Petrie, you see? This place is a lure. My God!' He broke off as I clutched wildly at his arm. The last arrival, having taken his seat in a corner of the divan, two heavy curtains draped before an opening at one end of the room parted, and a girl came out, carrying a tray such as already reposed before each of the other men in the room. She wore a dress of dark-coloured gauze, banded about with gold tissue and embroidered with gold thread and pearls, and around her shoulders floated, so ethereally that she seemed to move in a violet cloud, a scarf of Delhi muslin. A white yashmak trimmed with gold tissue concealed the lower part of her face. My heart throbbed wildly. I seemed to be choking. By the wonderful hair alone I must have known her. By the great brilliant eyes, by the shape of those slim white ankles, by every movement of that exquisite form. It was Garamina. I sprang madly back from the rail, and Smith had my arm in an iron grip. "'Where are you going?' he snapped. "'Where am I going?' I cried. "'Do you think?' "'What do you propose to do?' he interrupted harshly. "'Do you know so little of the resources of Dr. Fu Manchu "'that you would throw yourself blindly into that den? "'Damn it all, man! I know what you suffer, but wait! Wait! "'We must not act rashly. Our plans must be well considered.' "'He drew me back to my former post and clapped his hand on my shoulder sympathetically. "'Clutching the rail like a man frenzied, as indeed I was,' I looked down into that infamous den again, striving hard for composure. Karamina listlessly placed the tray upon the little table before Sir Bingham Pine, and withdrew without vouchsafing him a single glance in acknowledgment of his unconcealed admiration. A moment later, above the dim clamour of London far below, there crept to my ears a sound which completed the magical quality of the scene, rendering that sky platform on a roof of Soho a magical carpet bearing me to the golden orient. This sound was the wailing of a reed pipe. The company is complete, murmured Smith. I had expected this. 
Again the curtains parted, and a gazea glided out into the room. She wore a white dress, clinging closely to her figure from shoulders to hips, where it was clasped with an ornate girdle, and a skirt of sky-blue gauze which clothed her as Io was clothed of old. Her arms were covered with gold bangles, and gold bands were clasped about her ankles. Her jet-black, frizzy hair was unconfined and without ornament, and she wore a sort of highly-coloured scarf so arranged that it effectually concealed the greater part of her face, but served to accentuate the brightness of the great flashing eyes. She had unmistakable beauty of a sort, but how different from the sweet witchery of Garamina! With a bold swinging grace she walked down the centre of the room, swaying her arms from side to side and snapping her fingers. "'Zarmy!' exclaimed Smith. But his exclamation was unnecessary, for already I had recognised the evil Eurasian who was so efficient a servant of the Chinese doctor. The wailing of the pipes continued, and now faintly I could detect the throbbing of a darabuka. This was El Wasser indeed. The dance commenced, its every phase followed eagerly by the motley clientele of the hashish house. Zarmi danced with an insolent nonchalance that nevertheless displayed her barbaric beauty to greatest advantage. She was lithe as a serpent, graceful as a young panther, another Lamia come to damn the souls of men with those arts denounced in a long-dead age by Apollonius of Tyana. She seemed at once some penanced lady elf, some demon's mistress, or the demon's self. Entranced against my will, I watched the Eurasian until, the barbaric dance completed, she ran from the room, and the curtains concealed her from view. How my mind was torn between hope and fear that I should see Karamina again! How I longed for one more glimpse of her, yet loathed the thought of her presence in that infamous house! She was a captive, of that there could be no doubt, a captive in the hands of the giant criminal whose wiles were endless, whose resources were boundless, whose intense cunning had enabled him for years to weave his nefarious plots in the very heart of civilization and to remain immune. Suddenly, that woman is a sorceress, muttered Nayland Smith. There is about her something serpentine, at once repelling and fascinating. It would be of interest, Petrie, to learn what state secrets have been filched from the brains of habitués of this den, and interesting to know from what unsuspected spy-hole Fu Manchu views his nightly catch, if his voice died away in a most curious fashion. I have since thought that here was a case of true telepathy, for as Smith spoke of Fu Manchu's spy-hole, the idea leapt instantly to my mind that this was it this strange platform upon which we stood. I drew back from the rail, turned, stared at Smith. I read in his face that our suspicions were identical then. Look, look, whispered Weymouth. He was gazing at the trap-door, which was slowly rising, inch by inch, inch by inch. Fascinatedly, raptly, we all gazed. A head appeared in the opening, and some vague reflected light revealed too long narrow, slightly oblique eyes watching us. They were brilliantly green. "'By God!' came in a mighty roar from Weymouth. "'It's Dr. Fu Manchu!' As one man we leapt for the trap, it dropped with a resounding bang, and I distinctly heard a bolt shot home. A guttural voice, the unmistakable, unforgettable voice of Fu Manchu, sounded dimly from below. I turned and sprang back to the rail of the platform, peering down into the hashish house. The occupants of the divans were making for the curtained doorway. 
some who seemed to be in a state of stupor were being assisted by the others and by the man ishmael who had now appeared upon the scene of karamina zarmi or fu manchu there was no sign suddenly the lights were extinguished this is maddening cried nayland smith maddening no doubt they have some other exit some hiding place and they are slipping through our hands inspector weymouth blew a shrill blast upon his whistle and smith running to the rail of the platform began to shatter the panes of the skylight with his foot that's hopeless sir cried weymouth you'd be torn to pieces on the jagged glass smith desisted with a savage exclamation and stood beating his right fist into the palm of his left hand and glaring madly at the scotland yard man i know i'm to blame admitted weymouth but the words were out before i knew i'd spoken ah as an answering whistle came from somewhere in the street below but will they ever find us he blew again shrilly several whistles replied and a wisp of smoke floated up from the shattered pane of the skylight i can smell petrol muttered weymouth an ever-increasing roar not unlike that of an approaching storm at sea came from the streets beneath whistles skirled remotely and intimately and sometimes one voice sometimes another would detach itself from this stormy background with weird effect somewhere deep in the bowels of the hashish house there went on ceaselessly a splintering and crashing as though a determined assault were being made upon a door a light shone up through the skylight back once more to the rail i sprang looked down into the room below and saw a sight never to be forgotten passing from divan to curtain door from piles of cushions to stacked-up tables and bearing a flaming torch hastily improvised out of a roll of newspaper was dr fu manchu everything inflammable in the place had been soaked with petrol and his gaunt yellow face lighted by the ever-growing conflagration so that it truly seemed not the face of a man but that of a demon of the hells the chinese doctor ignited point after point smith i screamed we are trapped that fiend means to burn us alive and the place will flare like matchwood it's touch and go this time petrie to drop to the sloping roof underneath would mean almost certain death on the pavement i dragged my pistol from my pocket and began wildly to fire shot after shot into the holocaust below but the awful chinaman had escaped probably by some secret exit reserved for his own use for certainly he must have known that escape into the court was now cut off flames were beginning to hiss through the skylight a tremendous crackling and crashing told of the glass destroyed smoke spurted up through the cracks of the boarding upon which we stood and a great shout came from the crowd in the streets in the distance a long long way off it seemed was born a new note in the stormy human symphony it grew in volume it seemed to be sweeping down upon us nearer 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 now it was in the streets immediately adjoining the cafe de l'egypte and now blessed sound it culminated in a mighty cheer the fire engines said weymouth coolly and raised himself on to the lower rail for the platform was growing uncomfortably hot tongues of fire licked out venomously from beneath my feet i leapt for the railing in turn and sat astride it as one end of the flooring burst into flame the heat from the blazing room above which we hung suspended was now all but insupportable and the fumes threatened to stifle us my head seemed to be bursting my throat and lungs were consumed by internal fires merciful heavens whispered smith will they reach us in time not if they don't get here within the next thirty seconds answered weymouth grimly and changed his position in order to avoid a tongue of flame that hungrily sought to reach him nayland smith turned and looked at me squarely in the eyes words trembled on his tongue but those words were never spoken 
for a brass helmet appeared suddenly out of the smoke-banks, followed almost immediately by a second. "'Quick, sir, this way, jump! I'll catch you!' Exactly what followed I never knew, but there was a mighty burst of cheering, a sense of tension released, and it became a task less agonizing to breathe. Feeling very dazed, I found myself in the heart of a huge, excited crowd, with Weymouth beside me and Nayland Smith holding my arm. Vaguely I heard, "'They have the man Ishmael, but—' A hollow crash drowned the end of the sentence, a shower of sparks shot up into the night's darkness, high above our heads. That's the platform gone. End of chapter 26